Well, if, uh, if we were sitting down at this moment for a, um, a cup of coffee, which we can do now, by the way, at Starbucks, I saw, saw that this morning, you can actually go inside, which is kind of cool to get back to that. But if we were sitting down at Starbucks, say, and we're having a cup of coffee, and you were, wanted to ask me some questions, and you said, you asked me, Chris, what is the, the greatest reason, the, the real reason, the main reason why you believe uh, in Christianity? And I, I would not hesitate to tell you that the main reason, above many reasons, but the main one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, um, you say Chris, why, why, do you, why do you believe this Jesus guy we read about in this book here, you know, this Bible thing, uh, how do you know that he even rose from the grave? Like, what, what evidences or proofs uh, do you actually have? I mean, that's a pretty big leap of faith. You, you actually weren't there. You didn't actually see it. So how, do you, how are you so certain? And again, there were many reasons I could give for that, but I believe the primary reason, the, the biggest reason for why I believe that he really did rise from the grave is the transformation in the lives of the people that saw him alive, right? Um, you, you see, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thing. It's not enough to simply believe uh, that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You know, I'm just, that's just what I'm gonna believe. It's, it's, you can't just do that. You have to come up with a historically feasible alternative explanation for the birth existence of the church. And when I say the church, I do not mean a building. I do not mean a program or political movement or whatever else may come into your mind when I, when I say the word church. I'm talking about people, real, normal people whose lives were so transformed by what they saw that they were willing to take it to the grave. And I mean, what I mean by that, and we'll get by it a little bit later, not just take it to the grave, in terms of just dying, they, they were murdered. They were, most of them were martyred and refused to recant their belief that Jesus really rose from the grave. That, to me, is by far the greatest evidence of that. The belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what motivated them. So we read about here in the book of Acts and the rest of early church history. Ridicule, prison, torture, even death would not stop them because they saw him alive. So if the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax, if it's a fabrication, then what about the power of such a lie to transform people, produce men and women who gave up everything to follow a dead guy, right? How did they turn from cowards to, to heroes? How did they go from being timid to being bold, from being selfish to being selfless? What, how, how did that transformation take place? And the ultimate answer to that is that the resurrection of Jesus converted them. Converted them. That's a word you may have heard before, um, but that's important we understand that. It converted them. Christianity was never understood as a set of teachings or ethics that one took up, all right? It was actually a power that took you up. <laughs> it's a power that changes you from the inside out. Have you been converted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You say, what do you mean? Well, to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is to be converted. Or the Bible will use other words you may read about or see, other theological terms, things like being regenerated or made alive or born again or are justified or declared acceptable in God's eyes. All these are, are virtual synonyms here. And this all happens when you turn away from your suicidal love affair with the world and you turn towards Jesus. That one is faith and one is repentance, right? They're two sides of the same coin. That's how conversion happens. Let me give you a couple of passages of many of them, but in John's gospel, chapter one, he says, to all who did receive him, that would be similar, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 1 Corinthians, a book we studied not too long ago, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but do, do not be deceived? He says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor adult, 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 let me try that again, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice this, but such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified, declared right, acceptable in the, in the eyes of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul wrote this, the, the guy Saul that we see in our text today. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, I mean, he, he literally felt that, right? He experienced that. When this appeared, he says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing, here it is, of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. So understand this, this justification idea, this being declared right before God, this conversion idea is, is a once-for-all act, and it's not a process. I want to camp here just for a moment before we get in our text, because we're going to see that in our text. It's a once-for-all act, it's not a process. It's not something that happens over time, though it may feel like a process in experience. And that's important that we, we, we delineate those two. Some of us, like myself, um, uh, like Paul and our, or Saul in our passage today, have had that Damascus Road type of experience. But many have come to grasp the gospel over time, after hearing it over and over and over, and then one day the, the penny kind of finally drops. It kind of all makes sense, but you may not be able to pinpoint exactly when that took place. But there's still a point in time that you're regenerated, you're justified, you're converted, even if you can't point to a specific time. I think it's, it's interesting how the, the Bible describes conversion, or the gospel even. In James chapter 1, the, the, he says the word is, is the gospel is implanted like a seed in your soul where God uses to convert you. It's like a seed that goes down into your soul. 1 Peter 1 says the gospel is planted in your soul with an imperishable seed that causes you to be born again. You know, and sometimes in our experiences, sometimes God uses a, um, almost like a pickaxe approach to the soil of your soul, okay? Where he comes along, kind of like Saul here, takes the pickaxe, wham, 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 right? And then plants the seed of the gospel, and you're like, yeah, I knew when that happened. It was almost violent, right? God grabs you, converted you, changed you. You, you know that experience, but sometimes God, many times, God doesn't necessarily use the pickaxe approach. It's subtle. It's quiet. The seed goes in the ground. But it, you know, it germinates underneath the surface, and it sprouts forth, and it bears fruit. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a changed person. I totally believe. But I'm not, I'm not quite sure when, when that germination took place. I'm not quite sure when, it, when I really, really understood that. For most, the gospel is a seed that God quietly plants through the understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's watered through, through the preaching of his word, the reading of his word, through the listening of the gospel. And eventually the seed germinates, breaks the soil, and bears fruit. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, late pastor of a church in Philadelphia, I always remember telling this, him, hearing him tell this story I thought was really helpful for some of our stories here. Uh, he told the story of how the former Surgeon General of the United States was uh, coming to the church that he, he pastored. He said his wife 
had been uh, kind of hauling him, I guess is the way he would put it, into church. Uh, she was a follower of Jesus. She was a Christian. He was not, but he went along because, you know, he wanted to keep things peaceful at home and figured this would be helpful. So he went along with her, dragged her, you know, dragged him in. And the, uh, he describes how he would always be there. He'd sit in the back, you know, arms folded kind of thing. And over, over a period of a year, he was coming. And then one day, Pastor Boyce said after church, he, he came up to me and said, uh, I want to get baptized. And Montgomery Boyce is like, Okay, when did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? He begins to describe for him, well, I believe in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, I've been changed by it. And he goes, well, when did that happen? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> he said, sometime over this past year of just hearing and understanding, and his wife was also a little confused, like, when did that actually take place? He goes, I can't, I can't pinpoint a time, but I do know what I believe, and I do believe that my life has been changed. I remember a similar story to someone like this. It was a guy named Ron. Who, had come, who was coming to Hollywood Church where I was uh, pastoring there in Los Angeles. And, uh, and Ron would come. He was a big guy, kind of intimidating, looked angry. He would sit in the back, and, uh, and his wife dragged him along, you know. And he came, he, after the first service, I remember he came in, sat in the back. He came up to me. And he was like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, kind of looking down at me. And he's, uh, he goes, I just want you to know I'm an atheist. I said, well, thanks, Ron, for sharing that. Um, I hope you come back, you know, kind of thing. And he did. He kept coming back for like three months. You know, he came back every Sunday, same kind of scowl, same kind of arms folded in the back. And he came up to me after service three months ago. He goes, hey, I just want you to know, I'm an agnostic now. I said, okay. He goes, he goes um, I believe God exists. I just don't know who he is. I'm like, I, I guess it's progress, I guess. You know, it's like, okay. Um, he keeps coming, you know. Three more months go by, six months now come in. He comes up, he goes, Hey, I just want you to know, I, I believe Jesus is God. I'm like, okay. I said, when did that happen? He goes, I'm not certain, but I'm, I'm convinced hearing, because we were going through the Gospel of John, I believe he's God. And I've given my life to him, and I want to get baptized. And I'm like, okay, right? It was the same kind of situation, but it, you couldn't really pinpoint a day and time. For some of you, this is important for you to get, right? You, you're kind of maybe obsessed. Maybe you doubt your salvation at times because you don't have that magical stamp or date or something in the front of your Bible where you're like, this is the exact time it happened. It is a once-for-all act, but it may be an unconscious moment, right, that you're not sure exactly when that took place. The point of the matter is, what do you believe now? Do you understand and believe that Jesus really, really lived, really died, really rose again, lived the life you couldn't live, died to death you should have died to save you? And have you been changed by that? Have you been converted by that? That's what we experience in the story this morning, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul the Apostle. Sorry, spoiler alert there, if you didn't know that was going to happen. That's who he becomes. And writes half of the New Testament, really, in that way. So, uh, so in this morning, as we, we read this, um, we're going to look at the reality of the resurrection, how it converted uh, really the most hated enemy of Jesus at this time. And there may be no greater evidence uh, for the resurrection than this story. So I'm going to look at the story. No outline again. I know I'm, I'm, I've spoiled you in the past, but no outline. We're going to go through the story and look at it and kind of make observations as you work through there. And, and, I, and I really do hope that you, the story resonates with you. If it does not, I hope you find hope in this passage. For you who, who do know Christ, this story also, understand, gives tremendous hope to the fact, as I prayed at the beginning, that God, if God can grab the soul of Tarsus, and if he could transform him, he could do that to anybody at any time, right? So let's dig into the story together. Let's look at verse 1. 
Saul says here, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. All right, so we, have, if you've been tracking or if you've been with us in this book of Acts we've been studying, we have seen uh, Saul before, okay? He was the one uh, way back in chapter 7. It was overseeing, uh, we saw that at the beginning of chapter 8, overseeing the stoning of Stephen, okay? That's where we first saw him. He was also the one that was the cause of all the Christians in chapter 8 to begin basically running for their lives. I mean, they, escape, they, they try to escape for their lives. They run out of Jerusalem. They end up scattered all over the place uh, because of him. You say, why? Because he was arresting them. He was imprisoning them. And based on the language here, we understand that he was also having them killed. So here we find him passionately pursuing to kind of snuff out these no-name followers of some dead guy, at least that's how he understands Jesus to be. He's going to find out that he's not dead, by the way, in just a minute. Um, he was passionate about keeping the purity of Judaism. Okay? You say, why, why was he so angry? This, why was he doing this? Because he was passionate about keeping what he would say the purity of Judaism. And anyone who threatened, uh, that was an enemy to him. To, to him, Christianity, or as it's called here, the way... <laughs> Uh, which I'm sure is taken from Jesus' statement of, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? So they called them the way, just like they would call them later the Galileans because Jesus was in Galilee a lot. But anyway, to him, Christianity was, was poison in the well of Judaism. It needed to be extracted, and it needed to be obliterated and destroyed. And that's, that's what he felt his mission was. But Christianity wasn't the only group he was after, just so you understand that. We learned back in chapter 4 that there were other guys who claimed to be the promised one, who claimed to be the savior, the, the rescuer, the Messiah that the Jewish people were longing for. There were many messianic movements during this time whose uh, would-be messiahs were executed. Jesus wasn't the only messiah, quote-unquote, as the people would claim that title. There were others who claimed that title. Jesus was the true one, but the other ones claimed it as well, and other ones, others were executed for that as well. Um, but the difference here with these Christians is that while all the rest claimed that their leader was dead and gone, uh, they claimed that Jesus was still alive. All the rest either gave up the revolution or they found another leader, okay? That's just kind of how it worked. They're like the minions, right? They just move on to another leader kind of thing. But claiming um, that the original leader was, a, was alive again, was that an option? Unless, of course, he was, which made Saul even, even angrier, so Saul was sure that this Jesus was just another one of these charlatans, another one of these fake kind of people. Maybe, maybe he's trying to get money, whatever it was. But he must have been a, um, Jesus, this Jesus must have been a little bit more persuasive since his followers are still being loyal to him after death. That was really unusual. But he figures if he kills enough of them, if he takes out enough of him, them, they'll give up the revolution, right? <laughs> they'll give up this idea that Jesus was actually really alive. And so, uh, and so he figures it, that if he kills enough of them, you know, they'll just, uh, as Anna said, let it go, right? And recant of their uh, hellish doctrines uh, that Jesus was the Messiah who was still alive. Little did Saul know that his very persecution was like gasoline on the fire of Christianity. We've seen this. We've been talking about this. His very persecution pushed them out of their comfort zone, leaving behind their homes and family and relatives and friends and church in Jerusalem and headed for the hills, as it were. They went to Samaria. They went to Damascus, as we'll see here in a minute. They went to all, over, all these places because of him. <laughs> he didn't even know that. So in our text, we find him marching out of Jerusalem in pursuit of these Christians. He's, he's been given the green light from the authorities to basically arrest, 
torture, and kill whoever claims to be a Christian in any town, anywhere that has a synagogue in it. And if you know anything about history, Judaism had spread to all the surrounding areas, and there was a synagogue about just about every single city. In other words, he had the green light to kill any of them anywhere he went. And so the waters um, are about to get really choppy here for the followers of Jesus. It's going to get really hard. Saul uh, will seemingly stop at nothing to get rid of them until he, again, spoiler alert here, meets Jesus, right? Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly it says a light from heaven flashed around him. So here we find Saul, court papers in hand, right, heading, um, heading down to Damascus, which is about 140 miles, just so you understand the map here, about 140 miles from Jerusalem where he's leaving. That journey would take a good week um, on foot. I imagine he probably cut it down to about three or four days. He's probably going pretty fast. He was pretty passionate, pretty determined man. He felt the Jewish people would be more pure and stronger with these weak, gullible Jesus followers out of the way. Ironically, by the way, he felt uh, he was doing a service for God that he would later testify to. He later would tell his story many times, and he felt he was serving God. He felt God needed him to do this. And he was hoping to get, you know, almost like the too enthusiastic thumbs up from God. Like, good job, kid. Way to go. I appreciate your work for me. I mean, that's, that's really what's going on inside of his head. But as he approached Damascus, the timeline is about noon. He tells it later on. He, he repeats this, this testimony quite a few times. And putting those together, we find out it's about noon. So high noon, sun's out. <laughs> and it says he, he was stopped dead in his tracks by someone he, he never in his wildest dreams thought he'd meet. As he's walking with his other kind of henchmen, probably joking and laughing about all the things they were going to do to these Christian, a bright light, so bright, brighter than the noon sun, flashed right around him. Verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. So apparently, the light was so bright, he couldn't see a thing. So he just kind of falls to his knees. You can imagine just kind of feeling for the ground as a point of reference. Knowing how arrogant he was, and again, his own testimony later would tell this, he probably initially thought that this was, uh, this was God, sure, but this is God coming to bless him, right? This is God coming to commend him for his efforts. He's going to call me out just like he did in the Old Testament with other, other people. He's going he's to call me out for this. Maybe, maybe he thinks God's going to maybe give him some clear directions. Maybe God will give him some known hiding places of these Jesus followers, right? He'll just kind of give me the ideas, give me the map, give me the GPS directions. I can put it in my iPhone. I'll find them, right? That's kind of what he's after. So here we find, it's not, but it's not, it's not a statement here, right? It's not an imperative. It's not a command that he gives. It's actually interrogative here. It's a question. The, uh, he's getting asked questions instead of, given, of commands being given to him. The interrogator is being interrogated, as we find out. Verse 4, shocking statement. Why are you persecuting me? This is amazing. I'm sure Saul's mind is just blown, right? The thought that he somehow was persecuting God was so, so far from his mind. He, he thought he was doing God a favor. What is, what is going on here? How, how is Saul persecuting Jesus? As we'll find out in a minute, this is actually Jesus himself. Well, first thing we find here is that Saul finds himself on the wrong side of God. He thought he was maybe buddy-buddy here, but here he finds himself over enemy lines, not as a helpless captive, but as an active fighter against God. This is very important for you to understand before you'll ever come to know Jesus, before you'll ever be converted, you have to understand that you're over enemy lines. and You're not a helpless captive. You're an active fighter 
with God. And this is the reality of all of us before conversion, enemies of God. It's not just that we are failing God. Understand, this is kind of a shocking statement. It would be hard to kind of swallow this truth here. It's not that we're just failing God. We're actually fighting God. We're fighting him. We resent God's control over our lives, and we substitute and prefer the things of the world over him who created us. Romans 5, verse 10, I'll put it this way. For if while we were enemies, this is speaking of all of us, we were reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. There's another truth here. There's another point I want to bring up in this whole statement. Do you recognize or see that Jesus identifies himself with his church? Do you hear that language? When he tells Saul, why are you persecuting me? Shouldn't it read, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? It doesn't read that, does it? It says, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. So there's a, there's a close identity. It's a very important point here to bring up. Jesus is intimately involved and intertwined with your life as a follower of Jesus. You who are an enemy have now become a friend. And when you converted, you don't just join a club or, or a church membership role. You are grafted into the body of Christ, Paul would later tell us. You become part of his body. And, and get this, when you hurt, he hurts, right? He resonates with that pain. He takes it here, he takes it personally when his children are attacked. <laughs> it's fascinating, right? I think it's very interesting. And, and understand, Paul was converted by this truth. He spent the rest of his life working this out in his writings, which later on, if you flip ahead in the Bible here in this book we're looking at, you'll see Romans and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. These are all works that he himself wrote. Okay? He's the author of those. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is, but he was the human uh, being that wrote that. And so we find here that uh, he would work this out. You can read all of them. And he, at the heart of the gospel is this. It's the doctrine of what we call imputation. You say, what in the world does that mean? Basically, it's this. It's where Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, late pastor over in England, he called it the great exchange, or really the unfair exchange, right? I get the righteousness of God in Christ, he gets all of my sin, right? The great exchange. That's what we mean when we talk about imputation. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We now become united with him so that the Father treats us like he treats Jesus. This is the reason that you'll read, like in the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians especially, you'll see this little language that Paul uses all the time. He says, in him, in him, in him. And he'll just say it over and over and over again. Like, just read Ephesians this afternoon, you'll see it. I don't know how many times, but there's dozens of times. He's obsessed with this idea that I'm, I'm in Jesus. <laughs> I, I've, I've been brought into this relationship and I'm, I, I've been given the righteousness of Christ. He would say this, and put it, he would put it this way pretty clearly here, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Saul, then now Paul in this writing says, he made him who knew no sin, that's speaking of Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. That's the unfair exchange part, right? He gets our sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We receive his righteousness. All right, back at the text here. So Saul, hearing that he's persecuting Jesus, no doubt is going, okay, wait a minute, I thought this was God talking to me. This can't be this can't be God, right? That's why he asked the question, verse five, who are you, Lord? He throws out Lord probably because he's like, apparently this is some kind of maybe God, authoritative figure or something. Um, I'll use the word Lord just to make sure we're okay here. Who, who in the Lord are you? Because obviously you're not the God I understand you to be. You see, Saul asks who he is because these statements don't make any sense to him. 
This is not the God that Saul has in his mind. Saul thought he knew God. He knew how God acted. He thought he was working for God. He thought God approved of him and affirmed his actions. As a matter of fact, this God that Saul, along with much of Judaism of his day, um, had crafted was just that. It was a work of their own hands. I told you before, Genesis begins by saying that we were made in the image of God. And someone once said it's very true that we, are, we today have returned the favor. We now are making God in our own image, right? We're crafting him to fit into our own image and what we want him to be. And that's really what Saul had, his own image of God. He was a God in his mind that worked for him. He was not the God that we see in the Bible. Many people today believe in a God that fits their desires and needs, right? They, they believe God just accepts everyone because, you know, that way he just fits in my back pocket. You know, I can pull him out when I need him kind of thing. Uh, it's a kind of a foldable, bendable, pliable Jesus, right? I just make him into whatever I want him to be. But that, understand this, that kind of Jesus you just make up, the one you kind of borrow some pieces from the Bible, oh, I like that, I don't like that, like that, that made-up Jesus that you have, um, that kind of Jesus won't change you. Obviously, how would he change you? Because he's only affirming everything you are, right? He won't change you. He won't convert you. You have to understand that, right? The deepest need you have is a God who doesn't give you what you think you need or tell you what you want to hear, but a God that tells you the truth. That's what you need, not one you make up. That would never, he would never change you. I remember reading, we have the book uh, back there in the, in the bookstore there, a book by Tim Keller called The... Um, the reason for God, and I thought he, he borrowed a kind of illustration from a, from a film. It's been made, I think, a few times already, but the film Stepford Wives, if you don't know what that is, basically, it's a movie, kind of a little humorous, I suppose, that men kind of handcraft and make their own wives, right, for their, uh, for their own uses, and, and they would never tell them no and do everything that they want them to do, right? They kind of handcraft them, and the movie, as it goes, realizes they can't have a personal relationship with this robot spouse that they've created. And, and so Keller uses that as an illustration saying this. He said, if you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. He says, you'll have a stubborn God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage Will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? Right? You do understand that the God of the Bible is going to offend you. Okay? Just read the Bible long enough and he will offend you. That's okay. That means there's something real there. It's not something you've made up. Unless you've got a God who tells you things you don't want to hear or to be true, you'll never be changed when he tells you things that are too good to be true, like, the, like that great exchange. You can't have it both ways. Right? You can't be like, oh, I love the fact that I'll just, he'll get all my sin, I get his righteousness perfect, but I don't like this piece. You can't do that. You can't have it both ways. So look back at the text, verse 5. And he said, and again, blow Saul's mind here probably, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, I, I, just, I just, I would love to have been a fly on the, I guess a rock, I'll say the wall, it's outside, I don't know. Fly on the rock there uh, to see this, but... I'm sure his heart skipped a beat or two or three here. Uh, I'm sure he is, as, uh, as Dan and Shay put it, speechless. You're welcome. Um, which is why he doesn't say anything from here on out. Do you notice the rest of the story? He is speechless. He doesn't say anything. He's completely done. He doesn't say anything else 
After that one question of who are you, doesn't say anything else. And I love this. Um, this statement makes it obvious that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And he doesn't sit down for a, for a coffee and chat with Saul and answer all of his questions. He simply proves that he is alive, and that's enough. You understand that, right? Jesus' resurrection has to tell us, look, I don't know about this, and I don't understand that, but I know there must be answers because Jesus is alive, right? It's okay to have doubts and questions, but I know there's resolution because I know Jesus is alive. That's why to, you know, to, to, to pontificate about the teachings of Jesus, which ones you like or don't like, to take and throw away what you don't want, uh, is really silly when it comes to the subject of the resurrection. You may say you like or don't like certain teachings of the Bible, but if Jesus rose from the dead, my friends, you got to take it all. <laughs> Do you understand that? You have to take it all. You can't pick and choose. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Look at verse 6. Rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. It's like he's being manhandled here, right? I mean, it's like you're going to be told what to do. Zip it, be quiet, here's what you're going to do. Saul just realized in this moment that Jesus is really God, uh, whom, whom he claimed to be. And he was in a heap of trouble. Uh, I'm sure he thought he was probably done for. Maybe he thought, knowing his Old Testament pretty well, I, I'm going to become a pillar of salt like, Saul's, like, uh, like Lot's wife, right? That's what's going to happen to me. I'm done. Um, instead, we find here that God had different plans for Saul. He tells him to rise, get off the ground, and stay on the road that he's on, actually. You're heading to Damascus? That's where I want you to go anyway. You didn't know it, but you, I had you on that road anyway. <laughs> Head that way. The very place he was going to kill Christians, he now needs to go as a humble follower of Jesus. Fascinating, right? And I think just as a kind of a footnote for later on in the book of Acts, he tells his story multiple times. I love how, listen to Acts 26. Here's how he put it, how his story went. Verse 13, at midday, O king, he's talking to one of the kings here, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, let's look at this added piece. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that little statement. That's what Jesus told him. Goads were sharp sticks used by farmers to get animals to obey their commands and move along a prescribed kind of way. If an animal kicked, kicked against the goads, of course, it hurt worse than if they just obeyed, right? That's kind of the point of what's being made there. I think, and I, this is a possibility, I think based on the language here, it seems possible that Saul might have actually been wrestling with the truth of Christianity and the reality of the resurrection. He was kicking against the goads. Maybe, I like to think, maybe it was Stephen's testimony still lodged in his brain, still thinking that guy was crazy, but what if he wasn't? <laughs> I mean, he died like he did and yet didn't recant. And probably other, other believers he had arrested and had killed as well. I'm sure all of those stories are still in his mind. And he's, he's wrestling with that, with that truth. What if, what if they were onto something, he probably thought. Maybe deep inside he had, he had this thought that maybe it was true. Maybe he was trying to suppress it, which is probably why he was so adamantly against it. He's probably trying to eliminate his self-doubts with rage, Right? I'm going, to take, I'm, going to, I'm going to not take time to, to doubt and think about it. I'm just going to get, get mad, right? And that's what he does. So the question is, I think it's applicable to all of us, are you kicking against the goads of the reality of God this morning, right? You know it's pointless, right? You know it's fruitless. 
Not only Stephen's story here, but again, countless others probably had the same impact on him. And notice again who met who in the story. Saul wasn't seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking Saul. At the heart of the story, we find sovereign grace overcoming a hardened heart. Almost like God's like a divine chess player that goes checkmate on Saul. He <laughs> goes like, you're mine, I got you. No matter where you find yourself today, know that if you are, if you are a Christian, then it was not because one day, you know what, you got the good idea to follow Jesus. You're like, I figured this out, I got it, I'm in. Right, at least not initially here. It was the pursuit of God. It was the work of God to come after you and draw you effectually to himself. And if you're here today seeking to understand him, interested in the truth of Jesus, then understand that that itself is a work of God, and that's encouraging. For some of you, you sit here and you go like, I never imagined I'd be in a church. I remember that was me when I was 18. I'm like, that was the last place in the world I thought I would be, <laughs> right? I thought I was so far, so far away from that. I didn't think that would never be a reality, and there I sat one day, you know? That was a work of God. That's what Jesus would say this, John 6, 44, no one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a source of hope. This passage tells us that Jesus can save anyone, anytime, any place, no matter what you have or have not done. That guy at work, that neighbor, that spouse, the wayward child, that lady living above you in the apartment, right, who you think would never become a Christian. No way that's happening can. Do you understand that? Are you hearing me this morning? Some of you carry heavy, heavy burdens, right? You've got loved ones that your heart breaks for. And this passage tells you God can, okay? They're not, they're breathing air. They're not beyond the grace of God. Saul was the last person we would have thought would have come to faith in Christ, and yet he did, and yet he did. Look at verse 7. Here we find the, his kind of companions. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he's without sight, didn't eat, didn't drink. So Saul's henchmen, they didn't really know what to think. They heard the voice. They didn't see anything. They don't understand. Um, apparently, they, they, they couldn't make out what was being said uh, clearly, and all, all they see is Saul kind of get up off the ground and look at them, but look at them and not see them, right? He is blind. He can't see anything. And so interestingly enough, they have to take him by the arm and lead him into to Damascus, almost like a, like a toddler. How humbling must it have been um, for the self-made man like Saul to be led by hand into Damascus? When he got there, he spent three days thinking all this over. I mean, replaying the experience over and over in his mind. He couldn't see, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he just fasted, he just prayed. I mean, he was in utter shock. It's like PTSD from seeing the resurrected Christ here. I mean, he is like done. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he can't even eat. How could this Jesus be alive? I'm sure he's thinking. Verse 10. So here we find this disciple named Ananias who's in Damascus. Jesus comes to him, tells him, you know, calls for him. And so we find Jesus moves on for, to work on the Christians now, especially this guy named Ananias. And he came to him to prepare him for some news that I'm sure is going to be hard for him to swallow here, right? Verse 11, rise and go to a street called Straight, house of Judas, it's one of your friends. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. He's seen, he's seen you in a vision. You're going to help him basically regain his sight. <laughs> 
Jesus tells him to go to this street, right? Go to his buddy's house, Judas. It's a guy you know, go to Judas' house, go hang out with him, and you're going to find your not-so-good buddy, Saul. They knew Saul was coming to kill them. And so no doubt this probably seems like a trap. I, I like to imagine what Ananias was thinking. I'm sure he thinks, okay, you said he'll be praying. That's perfect because I'm going to bring my crowbar and I'm going to hit him upside the head while his guy's eyes closed. Right? I mean, that's, that's what I would think. Okay, this is what you're doing, Jesus. You got me going on a secret, you know, secret mission. I'm going to take him out. He's assuming that that's what's happening. And Jesus does want him to lay his hands on him. He does tell him that. I want you to lay your hands on him. But not violently. Graciously, right? Ananias says, you're, you're going to help him regain his sight. And I'm sure he's going, but why? So he can better see me when he kills me? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Is this some kind of joke? Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority to bind all who call on your name. So I love this. Ananias like reminds Jesus, hey, just in case you didn't know this, um, the word on the street is, in case you didn't know that, this guy's bad news, right? This guy's like Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. You may not know that one, but, but he's bad news. You don't want to mess with this guy. We'll invite a lot of people in our community, Jesus. We'll invite, we're, we'll invite a lot of people, but not that guy, right? Too many knocks against him. He struck out. No more chances. We got to draw the line somewhere. We're not going with this guy. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, Jesus said, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Jesus reminds Ananias, and he, does, he knows the word on the street. He, he actually knows, okay, what's going on. And he understands that the gospel is not just applicable to Saul, it's also applicable to Ananias. And so he tells him to go. He tells him to go. No more questions. Just realize that Saul is a trophy of my grace, and you won't be able to fathom all the things I'm going to do, do through him. You'll thank me later. It's probably what he's going to say. You have no idea. He's gonna, he, you're going to like him later, Okay. Um, and he's going to suffer, but notice he's going to suffer not for his sins. So important you know, Saul's not going to suffer for the sins he has done, which you may think would be logical, but that's not how God rolls. Here's not how he works. Grace is fully grace. He's going to suffer for my name's sake. Okay, it's very different. And Saul would do just that. Go read 1 Corinthians 11, and he'll recount for you all the sufferings which he faced for Jesus' sake, for the sake of the gospel. And history tells us that he eventually ends up in Rome, at the end of his life, and he is beheaded there for the sake of the gospel. Matter of fact, just in a few chapters here, he's going to go into a city. They're not going to like what he says about Jesus, and they're going to stone him like, like big rocks, throw them, pile them on top of him, like basically he's left for dead. They think he's dead. They drag him out of the city, leave his, his quote-unquote dead body because they think he's dead. He wakes up from a you know, coma, basically, gets up, and you know what he does? He goes right back in there again. He goes, hold on, I got more to tell you about Jesus. Right? I mean, this guy is transformed. But understand, Saul won't suffer for his sin, but he will suffer for the Jesus that he loves. Understand that God doesn't pay you back for your sin when you come to him in faith because he already paid for that with his blood. It will be unrighteous for God to require two payments for the same sins. He doesn't do that. Verse 17, Ananias departed, said, okay, here we go. Entered the house, laid his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, by which you came, has sent me, so you may re regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias felt it best to obey. Probably a good idea. And so he went. And I'm sure, I imagine him sneaking around doing a little recon, you know, trying to figure out what all's happening here with the Saul character, right? Is he, is he going to attack me, kill me kind of thing? Um, he went over to him. Um, 
gently maybe, you know, counting his very breast, wondering why is he doing this again? And notice how the gospel, though, totally melts Ananias. You see the gospel is not, I told you this before, it's not just the front door on, you know, the front porch on the Christian life kind of thing of the house of the Christian life. It is the house. <laughs> like it, it is the entry, but it's also for everyday life. And the gospel has transformed him. He's melted. He, look at, listen to this, he can forgive Saul because of what Jesus did for him. It is quite possible, knowing that the, it wasn't a large amount of Christians, okay? They probably knew each other or were pretty familiar with each other. It is quite possible that Saul had even killed some of his own relatives and friends. It's very possible. He had killed many. Ananias understood, and I've told you this before, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, that all forgiveness is suffering. Either Ananias suffers for it and holds a grudge, or he makes Saul suffer for it with vengeance, or Jesus, Jesus suffers for it and he finds freedom. Right? Those are the options when it comes to being offended or being hurt by somebody. Either you take it on yourself and you hold a grudge and you, you hurt yourself, or you hold it out on somebody else, you make them, you, know, make them, you take vengeance out on them, or Jesus pays for it and you find freedom. That, that's the three options. But that's what he did. He found freedom. And I love it. He calls Saul, what does he call him? Brother. <laughs> that is amazing. He calls him a brother. By faith in Jesus, Saul is part of the family. He doesn't earn his way in. He doesn't come in on probation, okay? I'll see how this thing works out for you, Saul. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He's a full-fledged member of the family when he comes in. This is Saul's conversion. He's now part of the family of God. He's got a whole new identity. As opposed to being known as the man who persecuted the church, having an, an identity in his performance as a religious zealot and extremist, he now has an identity based on nothing he has done. You notice that? Complete change in identity. He's been brought to the family of God by grace. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So his eyes are opened. Scales fall from his eyes. He could see. And when he opened them, Think about this. When he opened his eyes, the first thing he saw is he's, he's staring into the face of a man he came to arrest and kill. <laughs> it's the first person he sees. And now instead of arresting him, Saul allows him to take him down to some water, a pool or something, and submerge him underwater for baptism. I, I like to imagine Ananias maybe kept him under just a few seconds longer, you know, the normal. Just, okay, all right, I'll get you up here. When they ate a meal together, right? They operated like family. They hung out together. I mean, this is, this, is, this is completely transformed by grace. It's interesting. Many people have tried to uh, debunk the story because it has become really one of the strongest arguments for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Two, uh, two men, uh, their names were Lord Littleton, Littleton and Gilbert West, back in the 18th century, concluded that Christianity, Christianity only held up under two pillars, the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus character. And if they could debunk those two, you can get away, you can throw, throw away Christianity altogether. So they both set off to write books, uh, debunking the accounts with their research. West took on the resurrection, Littleton took on the conversion of Saul, saying he would disprove that Jesus rose from the grave and that he didn't appear to Saul. When it came to the story of Saul's conversion, Littleton said there was only three options for what could have, been, could have happened. Very C.S. Lewis-like, by the way. And this is pre-C.S. Lewis, so maybe Lewis borrowed it from Littleton. I don't know. He, he said there was only three options. Paul was either deceived 
or he was an imposter, or he was a lunatic. That was his three options, he said. He came up with, with, uh, with them. As Lilton did his research, this thought of Saul be- being deceived um, uh, was, uh, was trying to figure out the question of who, then who would have deceived him? He was, if he was deceived, who, who would have done it? Who would have tricked him into believing that Jesus was really alive? And he concluded the only ones who would have had any motivation for doing that would have been Christians. But that didn't make any sense. Because Christians weren't trying to reason with Saul. They were trying to run for their lives. They were not interested in talking to him. They were interested in running away from him. Um, the other thought that Littleton had was that Saul was an imposter. Maybe he was a fake, someone who worked an inside job on Judaism, right? But he wondered, what, what motive would Saul have had? Some might do this to get ahead in life. Some might do this to impress others, become popular, maybe gain power, Uh, maybe reasons why someone would would be a fake, an imposter. But that wasn't the case with Saul. As we know from his own story and from Judaism itself, he had a bright future in Judaism. Um, He had all the power he could ever have wanted. His own testimony, he wrote in Philippians 3, was that he was the top of his class. If anyone was going to make a name for himself in Judaism, it was this guy, right? It made no sense for him to be an imposter for this. Littleton concluded he could not have invented the story to get ahead for the exact opposite happened. He got behind. He didn't get ahead. And he gave up everything and suffered tremendously and died as a martyr. He said, the idea that Saul was an imposter is not, not happening. So last option, he said, was that he must have been crazy, right? He must have been a lunatic. He must have been a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? He just wasn't all there. But as he researched his life... It seemed far from crazy, right? He was entrusted with the task of ridding Judaism of the plague of Christians, and they wouldn't just entrust that to anybody. Also, we find out that Saul was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, right? He was not Sadducee. It's a real <laughs> cheesy Christian joke there. But he was, he was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. You say, what, why are you bringing that up, Chris? What difference does that make? A Pharisee believed in resurrection. Sadducees didn't. He believed, like many Jews of his day, that one day a Messiah would come. And that he would renew the whole world and he would resurrect the righteous. The idea, though, for him of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history while the rest of the world continued on burdened by sickness and death and injustice was inconceivable to him. This would have made him mad, not crazy, which is true. It didn't make him mad. Saul had logical reasons for why he disbelieved the resurrection of Jesus. It didn't make sense to him. At the end of the day, as I said at the beginning, the resurrection converted the soul of Tarsus because it was the only explanation for such a changed life. He goes from being a murderer of Christians to a proclaimer of the very gospel of Christians. And he would take this story of encountering Jesus on this day to his grave, right? And he would die for that truth. I told you this before, but this is, this is how they, all the apostles would go, right? The fact of the matter is not a single apostle would recant of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Every single one of them would die holding on to the belief that he was really alive. That made them either collectively the most gullible group of people or maybe the most insane group of people or the most truthful and honest. That They were willing to die for what they saw. Matthew was killed by a sword. Mark would die in Alexandria being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke would be hung on a large olive tree in Greece. John permanently scarred by a pot of boiling oil and banished to an island called Patmos to die. Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would be killed with a sword and beheaded in Jerusalem. James, the apostle, would be thrown down from a high pinnacle and beaten to death until he died. Philip would be hanged. Bartholomew would be scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew would be bound to a cross until he died. Thomas was run through with a lance. 
Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus, will be killed by executioner arrows. Matthias will be stoned and beheaded, same for, Bar for Barnabas and Paul. Saul, in our story here, became Paul, will be beheaded in Rome. Every single one of them would die gruesome deaths. You don't, you give up the, the show, right? You give up the shenanigans. <laughs> when it comes down to like, I'm gonna be tortured, okay, let me tell you the truth, he didn't really come alive, right? But they all said he was alive. They all believed that. My friend, Jesus is alive today, and the conversion and blood of his followers bears that proof. As for that Lord Littleton I told you about and Gilbert West, the, the guys back in the 18th century, they got together after doing their research <laughs> to compare notes uh, some months uh, along the way. And one of them said, hey, I, I've got a confession to make. And the other one said, I do too. <laughs> there was something to these stories. They both agreed. By the time they were done doing their research to, to debunk the, the resurrection of Christ and the conversion of Saul, guess what happened? Not shocking probably, but they both became Christians. Matter of fact, um, West ended up writing the book called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Littleton wrote the book The Conversion of St. Paul, arguing that they both were realities and they both actually took place. Remember, Lord Littleton put it this way. He said, the conversion of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. My friends, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and it is, how does that change your life? What difference does that make in your life today? See, it's kind of nice studying the resurrection not on Easter, right? Because it's, it's so much more than one day a year where you dress up, you know, in your best clothes and go hide Easter eggs. Like, <laughs> that's, that's not what Easter is all about. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a truth that changes the world, and it is a truth that can change you. Have you been converted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The old hymn put it this way. It said, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, wondrously complete. So we go to communion. That is your invitation to consider what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Are you kicking against the goats like Saul did? Are you fighting against God in that way? It's an opportunity to lay it down today. If you're a follower of Christ, hey, there's times we get stubborn and hard-headed too. And sometimes we need to lay it down, right? So let's take an opportunity to reflect the juice and the bread there is uh, there to do in remembrance of Jesus, his body and blood broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. If you're not a Christian, it's your moment to consider laying down your life to him to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for uh, this passage, this wonderful story. Because God, as, um, as the rest of Acts unfolds and really the rest of the New Testament unfolds, this guy who has seemed impossible to be transformed like this, becomes the most outspoken follower of you. Ends up writing half of our New Testament that we own and have today in our hands. Um, God, I pray um, that we find hope in that. You can transform and do, as, even as Paul himself would say, exceedingly, abundantly, and beyond all that we could ever ask or think. He knew that because it's exactly what you did in his life. May you give us hope today that you can do that. And help us to see people, people out in the world, people out in our neighborhood and our families, friends, that God seems so far from you. God, help us to look at them and say, if you could save Saul, you can save them. And God, give us that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.